0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I'm very happy to say that today we are talking with Anders Ingram about his terrific book, "Writing the Ottomans: Turkish History in the in Early Modern England." I was telling Anders in the pre-interview that I wrote a book a little bit like this about European, in general, impressions of what I used to call Muscovites, but you probably understand as Russians in the early modern period, and so. I very much enjoyed reading Anders' book. It's, it's a fascinating treatment of the way in which um, the, the Ottomans and Turks more generally w- came to be understood by, by the English. And, and uh, I think that anybody that picks it up will be very interested in it, uh, whether you're an early modernist or not. So first of all, Anders, let me say congratulations on writing the book. And second of all, let me welcome you to the show. Uh, thanks very much for
1: your kind words there. Uh, I I remember reading your book myself, and it is is cited in the notes there somewhere. It is. Well, thank
0: you very much. You and about four other people, I think, wrote my book, one of whom was not my mother. So uh, so I hope this podcast gets the word out about your book so you get a vast readership. So in any event, could you tell us a little bit about the origins of the project? How did you come to write Writing the Ottomans?
1: Well, so, I mean, in the in the immediate past, I, I wrote it with the help of a um, Government of Ireland two-year grant, Irish Research Council grant, for which I was very grateful. Um, but this this topic of the Turks and, and English thoughts about them has been quite long-growing for me. It actually grew out of an undergraduate dissertation a lot of years ago, which I did in about 2001. So it's a good 15 years in the writing, this book. Um, I, I originally kind of got on interested in the topic because I'd... At that point in time, it was very evident that um, the Middle East uh, was going to be an area where there was going to be a lot of um, problems with the relationship with the West, so it was going to be complicated. Already at that point in time, it seemed very clear, and so it just seemed like a topic that it would be worth knowing a bit more about the background of. And as I started to look into it, I was already interested in early modern history, it was very evident very quickly that, none of the early modern sources were looking at the Arab world. They were all looking at Turks. And at the time I didn't know much about the Ottoman Empire. And so that that sort of disparity between the Ottoman Empire, once I started to read about it being such an obviously important part of how the modern world has come about in the, the sort of formulation that it's at, it, it was astonishing to me that I, I didn't know more about it. And so that was really the spur to me to start off um, working on the Turks. And um that grew into a a master's dissertation and at length. And I lived in Turkey for a year, um, working as an English language teacher. Then it became a doctoral thesis at Durham university in in the UK here. And, um, several years after that, I I rewrote it as a book and, and I'm, I'm glad I did take a while to write it as a book. Um, You know, I think that the best parts of the book are the parts that have developed substantially from being a master's thesis and have a bit of a wider view while I was sort of rereading it um, yesterday, really having a look over some chapters to remind myself what I wrote for this interview. (laughs) Uh, I I think that the strongest parts of it are definitely those that, that broaden out the view that it has and and the, the parts that still feel somewhat like a PhD to me are the ones that I was less pleased with, sort of re looking over it, you know. But I'm sure that that's a very common feeling with first books. Yeah, I imagine it is, yes.
0: Well, I mean, I know I never look at any book I ever wrote, I can't, I can't do it. It's too painful. But uh, also, you kind of reminded me when describing your journey into Ottoman or Turkish studies, whatever we want to call it. Um, I, don't, I think it was Curzon or somebody who said that the East is not a place, it's a career. Yeah. That's what happens
1: to all of us. <laughs> I've, I mean, it was one of those strange things. I found myself living in Turkey and you sort of look back on how did this happen? And yeah, exactly. It, it comes down to a day when you decided to do a topic for an yeah. uh, undergrad dissertation and you sort of think, isn't it funny that. that you take these kind of steps in your life yeah. and sometimes you take a left turn and it can lead you who knows yeah. where, really. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. it's quite true. So maybe we could uh, start by a little primer for me because I, I don't really know very much about uh, uh, Turkish and Ottoman history. I, I imagine their audience does, but just for my sake, let's make some basic distinctions before we begin. Uh, that I, I really, uh, these things are all kind of a mystery to me. Um, I remember that there's, of course, a distinction between Ottomans and Turks. What is that distinction? Yeah. Well,
1: there are several ways that you could answer that. I mean, the the Ottomans are um, in the first place a family. Um it's the, obviously the name of the eponymous founder of the Ottoman Empire. And then that um that term Osmanli came to um came to be taken by the kind of ruling elite of the Empire of the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. which expanded from circa thirteen hundred onwards and you know didn't end until the nineteen twenties. Mm-hmm. So um there's a certain point when that had grown into a very large global superpower, essentially, if you want to use that term in the early modern world, where, um, the majority of that elite elite were no longer Turkish in any sort of ethnic or linguistic sense, really. Um, and I think that, yeah, the, the term Turk, obviously you could take that to mean several different things again, you know, um, you could look at it as that sort of uh, linguistic grouping, that cultural grouping that goes back to the kind of um, Anatolian peasantry in the Ottoman period. Uh, but at the same time, the term Turk for Westerners came to have a much broader set of um, meanings, uh, the primary one of which I would say was associated with the Ottoman Empire as a kind of a unit, but not just the Ottomans, also with previous states and peoples that had um, prefigured the Ottomans in European eyes. So mm-hmm. the Seljuk Sultanate, um, which is obviously, of course, involved in the crusades and so features in a lot of medieval chronicles. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the Khazar peoples who dealt with the Byzantine empires going right back to the 8th century, uh, Western Europeans, certainly in the early modern period, view these all as Turks. Mm-hmm. and So that, that's, that's why I, I very deliberately chose the term um, you know, Turkish history in early modern England uh-huh. because early modern Englishmen very much viewed that as Turkish history and uh-huh. it included more than just Ottoman history. You know, I could have said Ottoman history in early modern England, but that that, is, that would be a different category than early modern contemporaries thought of sure. in sure. those terms. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's worth saying that there was an awful lot of peoples in the Ottoman Empire who were not Turks and who did not speak Turkish. Uh-huh. Um, and yet, this is one of the things that I wanted to, to sort of explore in the book is the way that these are lumped together. I mean, another, another formulation which early modern Englishmen very strongly identify with the Turk in the early modern period is Islam, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, of course, all of the kind of figurative meanings that get attached to people who are Islamic or have converted to Islam by early modern mm-hmm. English period as well. So that's a, that's a, it's a whole you know, can of worms, really, that question.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I've I a very complicated Venn diagram. When I think about these things, because I yep. know there are a bunch of different kinds of Turks as well. There are Oghuz yep. Turks and Kipchak Turks and Turks. Yep. I don't know what kind of Turks there
1: are, but oh, no, absolutely.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, just, just as the Turkish, the Turkic language group is very big as well. So it, it, it depends on quite how specific you want to be with that. But I mean, I think the important point for me is that sometimes early modern Englishmen are very specific when they say Turks. You know, they mean Turks as opposed to Saracens, which was their word for the Arabs. Or um, you know, or, or in fact, the word Arab or Moors um, to mean you know, North African uh, Muslims. But then, at other times, other Englishmen might be very, very, very general with those terms. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that one of the things when you handle those sources from that that period is being able to read whether the the author that you're dealing with you know, is being, is kind of parsing those terms in a specific way or whether they're being very general, because that can shift. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, this is a, it's an interesting case because the, uh, when did the Turks, uh, the Ottomans, the Turks, I don't know what to say, show up. That is, when did they appear yeah. in Anatolia?
1: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it, it, it you know, the, the, the term Ottoman starts to appear circa 1300. I mean, not much is really known about, um, the Osman who founded the Ottoman Empire, uh, other than from Ottoman chronicles, which are of course heavily mythologizing that period, uh, they don't really. Uh, it's not until his son Orhan that they, they conquer Bursa, is the first major city that they take. But that's the generation after Osman. So really, the, the, you have the, this kind of like a long time before Europeans are aware of the Ottomans. There is, a, you know, a tribal grouping that looks back to this kind of Osman as a sort of founder figure, um, which grows up as one of the, the various kind of sultanates that um, uh, is in that period is um, operating and, and present there in Anatolia. And it's just one of a number and gradually over time comes to conquer several others and get bigger. And it's it's not really until the capture of um, Istanbul, uh, Constantinople that Western Europeans really start to become aware of the Ottomans as, as something. And, and there's a very immediate response to the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in terms of asking exactly those kind of questions that you're just asking there, like, who are these people? Where have they come from? What do we do about it? What does it mean that they've suddenly appeared? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the period where, um, which I picked as this kind of like a wider... Point of departure for talking about European ideas about the the Turks and certainly within historical generic writing, which is is the topic of my book. Mm
0: -hmm. And so the fall of Constantinople, let me embarrass myself now, I think was in 1454, right? Yes. Ah, yes, yes, I win. (laughs) Boy, that would have been terrible if I'd ever forgotten that. So uh, let me ask a question that has a distinction. When is the first European I don't know what that means exactly, but we'll decide. European account of the Ottomans appear. And when does the first English account of the Ottomans appear? They may be one and the same, I recognize.
1: Yeah, that, so yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the first the first real body of writing, I mean, I, I couldn't say precisely when the first European account of the Ottomans is, but the, the first major sort of appearance of a body of work on them is... Um, Latin orations for the fall of Constantinople and, and there's uh, laments for the fall of Constantinople so mm-hmm. um, various authors much more qualified to look at this than me, um, Margaret of James Haskins um, Nancy Bazaar, various people have looked at um, Italy and that kind of renaissance period with this big flourishing of what's essentially either laments for Constantinople or um, sort of uh, just attempts to kind of place who the Turks are, which tend to tend to come down to, to drawing classical antecedents to Herodotus and uh, the Scythian peoples that he describes. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, you can view that as being a kind of proto-Orientalist move where, where they sort of figure them in this fantasist way, or you can view it more generously, as, as I'm kind of inclined to do, which is that if you look at a culture that, that thinks in terms of typologies... Um, and examples that exist within, you know, uh, literary authorities, then actually, you know, if you, if you look through classical writing in the Bible, you, you know, the, the Scythians seem to represent what the Turks seem to represent for Europeans at that point in time. Mm-hmm. There's nomadic people that's grown into an empire that's more powerful and suddenly it appears and it allows them to give them this kind of lineage, mm-hmm. which makes sense in terms of the way that people think in the Renaissance. So, you know, I, I kind of I think... them. Um, with the um, with what what they had at hand, it, it, you could see why that was the assumption that they went for.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here, what we mean is by typology, this is a specific word. It means biblical yeah. typology, right? This is finding yeah. analogies in the Bible.
1: Yeah, yeah. And but I, I kind of I, when I used it there, I meant not just finding analogies in the Bible, but that becomes a kind of a mental habit that people did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. You know, you look for examples in authorities and not just the Bible, but classical authorities sure. that, that then allow you to understand things in the world around you. Okay. So um, I, I think if that's the kind of mindset that you're in and you look to classical literature, then who do you who do you draw on to describe the Turks? Well, it has to be the Sissians,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, let me ask you the question of complete ignorance. Were the uh, had the uh, had the Ottomans converted by that time? Were they Islamic by that? Were they Muslims by that time? Um, By the time they
1: conquered Constantinople, yes. Okay,
0: good. So did the Europeans look at them through that lens as well? Was this the scourge of God, the Hagarites or
1: anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the material that you you get these kind of laments for Constantinople, but you also get a kind of a resurgence in what's essentially crusade writing
0: Uh
1: in that 15th century period. But so you've got this kind of, um, the reason I've gone into the European stuff in so much depth there, though, is that the English stuff is really an offshoot of this. Yeah. You know, like there's this wider kind of a discourse or set of discourses, really, that happen in Europe. One of them is this kind of like largely Italian-based, not just Italian, but sort of humanist writing. So it spreads up, of course, into Germany and Central Europe and these places through these kind of literary channels and patronage. Um, But it's very much a sort of a humanist form of writing. And um, you get echoes of that happening in English sources. So One of the first um, English sources that I found on this is the Brute Chronicle, which is sort of uh, 1462, I think. And then Caxton reworks that into one of the first books printed in English in 1480. Mm. The name of it escapes me just now, but that has, and it's, it's one of the earliest sources I cite in my book. It's just a sort of passing mention of the fall of Constantinople and the Turks are in that. Now, what's interesting for me is at this point in English writing, the sense of it's very much that the Turks are a kind of a, like a crusade opponent, you know, an Islamic enemy that has sacked one of the, the great imperial city of Constantinople. And this is a terrible thing for Christendom. There's a very unproblematic um, identification with English works of that kind of late 15th century period with Christendom. And there's absolutely no problem in viewing the Turks as just being different to that and as a sort of threatening outside force, which is invading Christendom. And what's interesting for me is how relatively shortly after that, under the pressure of the Reformation, that very kind of neat schematic kind of breaks down. Suddenly you have a Christendom, which is a much easier to, much less easy to imagine as a single unified whole. And an invading force comes to kind of reflect um, the various divisions in Christendom as much as it does reflect difference to Christendom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes, oh no,
0: that makes perfect sense. So
1: when- I mean, I and mean, then really what drives it though is as the Ottoman empire expands, So you have the, the fall of Constantinople. Yeah, I was going to say they
0: didn't stop. Yeah, no.
1: <laughs> and it, this is one of the things about the Ottomans. that's very striking to early modern, um, commentators is is how effective they are militarily and how effective they are, not just militarily, but as a sort of imperial force, yeah. right? So, I mean, this, this, this is where you start to get into that territory where things are not just um, just pejorative or negative accounts of a sort of barbarian invader, but start to also admire them. So after the fall of Constantinople, you, you have a, a sort of period of retrenchment, and then the next really big um, series of advances. I mean, I kind of have skipped over as well that there's really two Ottoman empires in a sense. So the bit up to Timur, and then they lose a big battle, and then there's the second Ottoman Empire which comes and conquers Constantinople, etc. But really, so um, heading into the, the the big major advance into Europe comes in the early 16th century. So you have Selim the First conquers vast swathe of the kind of Middle East and all the way down through to Egypt and then at the same time starts to push um his successor Suleiman pushes um through europe and, and in that that kind of two range you get the the balkans and um of course hungary and so right up to the first siege of vienna there which is i think uh,
0: you got me yeah it's gone 1529
1: <laughs> <laughs> <I> Fifteen <laughs> twenty nine. <laughs> It's it, it, you know it, it's uh, accurate in my book at least. If I'm not sure it top. is. Yeah, go ahead. But in, in any case, so so what you have is that sort of like peak of power, where now from being a, a force that's largely outside Europe, now you know they're they're like they've conquered the Kingdom of Hungary, which is one of the wealthiest kingdoms in Europe, and you've got uh, you know laying siege to Vienna unsuccessfully for the first time, and you've got this massive, wealthy, powerful empire which has expanded very rapidly. And in response to that, something quite interesting happens with European writing on the Turks is that it it stops just being laments for Constantinople and and accounts of uh, sort of crusade accounts. And people stop writing as much kind of Latin narrations about it and start to write shorter, more practical books in vernacular languages, which attempt to explain, you know, they, they deal with all of the kind of origin questions which the earlier humanist generation wanted to deal with. But they also deal with you know who are these people? How does their state work? Um, how have they expanded so rapidly? Where, where have they conquered and when? Uh, why is their mi- military so effective? What can we learn from them? And how do you how do you what should we do about them? What do you deal with them? And that incorporates you know trade accounts, um, travel accounts, di- diplomatic accounts, as well as this kind of like historical material. And so you get people like Paolo Giovio um, writing, and um, and that kind of like. 1540s or so kind of period. And you really get, at that point, I think the development of a European... And it's at this point that history really starts to become one of the prime genres through which um, early modern Europeans start to explore who the Turks are and, and what they've done and you know why that's happened and what it all means mm-hmm. and what to do about it. And I think it's very clear when you look at early modern society and intellectual habits why it is that it's history that becomes the way to explore something in depth in that way, Mm -hmm. the way to have like a sustained intellectual and cultural engagement with who the Ottomans Mm -hmm. are. And uh, that, you know, I think that it's because history in the Renaissance and and afterwards is a, a genre through which you explain statecraft, through which you explain how people behave, through which you look for examples, through which to discuss, um, you know not just things like political philosophy but like statecraft and what's appropriate in public life and these kind of questions so history becomes a very important way of engaging with who the Ottomans are mm-hmm. and it's really at that kind of point in time we start to get translations of that kind of work in england uh in that sort of immediate sort of post english reformation kind of point after the break from rome henry viii kind of period mm-hmm. I mean,
0: I was going to say, I think precisely this time that this also sort of happens with the Russians, not as seriously, but a lot of Europeans, especially ones in the German Empire at this time, come to recognize the Ottomans as sort of a this is a this term is used uh, too lightly and too often, but a kind of an existential threat. Yeah, they might not yeah. ever stop. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's entirely. Well, possible that's also, in like,
1: Paris. The, the way that you interpret an existential threat plays out in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, they might not ever stop conquering you, but then Luther's answer to that, from the sort of 1520s onward, is that the Turks are, are literally an existentialist threat. Like, um, the reason why they're conquering Christendom is because Christendom's riven with sin and it's under the Babylonian captivity of Rome and the rest of it. And that if you want to defeat the Turk, you have to kind of defeat the Turk on a spiritual level, right? Mm-hmm. Where like what you need is godly reformation, right. and after that, God will stop punishing you. And because of that the Turks to stop invading you. you right, know? yeah. Like no, so, right. so there's this kind of like, I mean, it does become an existential threat in terms of they're, they're a sort of visible threat, but it also becomes a, you know, a, almost a threat in, on the level of an idea. Yeah,
0: they, they certainly had a major role in, I'm glad you mentioned Luther, I was about to mention Luther, because Luther thought a lot about the Turks he was yeah. Yeah, he was very very on about the turks. Yeah, um, he was. And he was probably very well informed given where he was, yeah. I would say. So like you mentioned history as a lens through which to understand uh, these foreign peoples in this case the the, the, the turks the ottomans, what would what history mean to these people? Um, you mean as in As a genre, genre yeah. I, I was just sort of you know we understand history in a certain way and I don't yeah. know, I'll just speak of my own book so uh, history is a uh, collection of writings by uh, people who like to sit in chairs and look at old documents that very people ever read. (laughs) I don't think that's the way they thought of it, but go ahead. Well, I mean, so I think that one of the things that's quite interesting
1: is that, um, the, the idea of what history is in the early modern period is so very different to now.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: so now the idea is that you kind of, um, you apply critical thinking to problems about the past (laughs) and you kind of, um, you know, we, we think about um, looking at what other historians have previously written and trying to sort of figure out, you know, how accurate that is depending on how you want to, you know, take a kind of a historicist approach to it uh, where you're very interested in situating things in the, in, in the time and the context and the ideas of the time when they happened. I mean, Renaissance ideas of history is a lot less kind of complicated by postmodernism than ours, right? But what, the Renaissance idea of history, on the one hand, is that we want to know what happened, and that actually, if you can get far as far back as kind of finding a first-hand account of it, then they're pretty happy that that is what happened, mm-hmm. and that really the, the the problem with history, if you're a Renaissance historian, is to remove contradiction between different accounts and sort of arrive at the truth in some sort of sense. And it's not just the truth in that it's an accurate description of what happened, but that history, because of divine providence, was very much um, seen as kind of holding within it moral truths and moral certainties in the same way that the Bible was full of moral truths and moral certainties. This kind of comes back to typologies, as we say. And this isn't just a Christian way of looking at it. I mean, this is also a stoic way of looking at it, right? So, um, you know, uh, Cicero calls history the mirror of the times and, you know, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And there's that idea that if you want to know how things work, what you do is you read about the things that have happened and therefore it's very important that somebody who's writing about the things that happened explains why they happened in a way, which is true because that's very useful. Mm-hmm. Well, as our modern idea of histories is a lot more about asking questions, you know, and if you look at what we try and teach in an undergraduate course of history, a lot of what we try and teach our undergraduates is like a mental approach, right? You know, who wrote this thing and why and when, and like from their perspective, what were they doing? And can you understand what's going on? Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of um, that kind of perspective on history is very alien to the Renaissance. When really the, there's the idea that there is a truth, and that what you're trying to do is get to that by removing all of the layers of kind of like contradiction and obfuscation that, that are obscuring it. But once you remove those, the thing that's left is like you know not only true in a practical sense, but true in a kind of a moral sense too.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So you make a distinction in the book, a good distinction, I think, between uh uh, history uh, and, and um, what you call news, uh, that is as a, yeah. as a genre for carrying information about the Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, so news is an interesting thing to talk about in the context of the 16th and, and 17th century, because um, in that kind of contrast of that period from the 15th to the 16th century, you really see a development of something which is much more something like resembling a chronicle entry or just a story, you know, it somebody talking about a topic, maybe from one perspective, to something which starts to develop um, various kind of generic um, features as news. You know, and I'm not just talking about in the, in terms of appearing in a, you know a shorter kind of pamphlet form that looks a bit like a newspaper, or appearing under the same title week in week out. There's another thing that we think of as a feature of news, but also the way that news is structured, right? The way that it's written about, the fact that there would be a date tied to it, the fact that where the news has come from might be reported, um, and then also this kind of language of news that develops alongside that—a uh, true report from um, a letter from a gentleman to a friend in the city, these kind of things. You you get within that a kind of a um, formulaic set of ideas about um, what news is, develops across that period of time. And then it's quite interesting to look at accounts of the Turks within that. And uh, The one problem that I think a lot of academics have had when they try to do that is they, they read newsletters or news pamphlets about the Turks and they try to relate them to other writing about the Turks, right? But one of the key things to relate them to is other news pamphlets. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're, I mean, often a thing that, that's a, a theme that comes up again and again in my book is that um, various conflicts between the Ottomans and various European states cause a lot of interest in the Turks in different periods and more interest than in other periods, right? But so there's an awful lot of news pamphlets which involve military conflicts with the Turks. However, it's quite important to view those in the context of other pamphlets talking about military events. So an example I draw on is the wars of religion in France. And they actually describe the wars of religion in very similar ways to people describing the Turks. They emphasize the bloodthirstiness, emphasize um, the kind of heroic and divine aspects of the way that people talk about war, uh, you know, actions as being heroic or actions as being, you know, despicable. And this language is kind of also part of the, the development of news as a, it's kind of a subplot in my book. That there's a the period across which news is developing as a, as a form of writing and as, as a form of publication, too. Uh, I think the physical aspect of, of how news is presented is part of that story, is in the same way as the, the kind of what is actually written about in it, in it develops. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a figure called John Wolfe I discussed quite a bit in, in chapter two that, that is it's a very fascinating figure, actually, um, in a lot of ways. But I won't get into that just now. Well,
0: I mean, I, I think one thing to say about the people that printed these is that they were involved They were involved in businesses, and, yeah. and they were pumping these things out. In Germany, yeah. I remember they are called Flugschriften, I yeah. think is the right word for them. And that just means pamphlet, really, but it, it's nice but it's, it's in the sense that it, it gathers together this kind of metaphor. It's something you kick out really fast, yeah. and, and it's sensationalist. By our standards, yeah. you read them, and they're, very, they're often accompanied by what are really salacious or grotesque woodcuts. I, mean, I don't know about the Turkish ones, but the Russians ones always were. And sometimes they were borrowed, one yeah, from yeah. another.
1: So you see one that's... Yeah, those woodcuts then place. become kind of like things <laughs> that, you know, a picture of a cannon can get applied right, to anything. exactly. It goes
0: all over the place, and so do all these tropes about bloodthirstiness yeah. and this other stuff. Yeah. And it gets applied, and you know, it's the news of the world is what it is. Uh, yeah. Although it does contain something did happen. <laughs> That's, you know, yeah no, that, absolutely and what's can. quite
1: interesting the, this this day and age as well is the as more and more material is digitized and available online and also with the quite wonderful um universal short title catalog at ustc yeah. oh yeah that is through great. that um you can now i mean i was able to locate writing this book a number of german pamphlets upon which the english pamphlets i looked at were based which yeah is something when i HD on this, I wasn't able to do because yeah, I mean, basically, because of the Staatsbibliothek in, in Munich. You yeah. know, they, they've published huge amounts of digitized material online and very high quality. So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. such a great thing for them to have done yeah. for people like me. Basically. Yeah,
0: but if you compare someone that the pamphlet writers, who I, I guess they have sources of their own and, and they put these things together, they're sensationalists, they're kind of formulaic, and they describe some event. I don't know what the Battle of Lepanto or something. And uh, then you compare someone like Knowles. Why don't we talk about him a little bit? He obviously knows a lot. He's not one of these pamphlet writers. He really knows what he's talking about. At least, Well,
1: he, I mean, he, yeah. kind of, he kind of apologizes for using a couple of pamphlets.
0: Yeah. But, you know, he,
1: he mentions a couple of them. But I mean, he, of course, has a lot of, of different sources. And so really, w- what happens with notes, right? The, 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 he draws on that European tradition that developed that uh, I was talking at, at length about earlier. And really, there's like three phases of that. There's the Constantinople... Uh, late sort of 15th century Italian writing that I talked about there's a kind of mid 16th century stuff that I talked about and then there's this, another category of kind of late 16th century writing um, which again happens because there's a major war between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans in, in the sort of 1593 to 1606 and what happens at that point in time is really based around Frankfurt there's a huge number of um, there's a huge number of kind of synthesizing works which draw together lots of different historical writing on the Turks from different sources. And they try to do exactly what I was just talking about in terms of history. They try to sort of iron out the contradictions between them and they try to create these big, comprehensive accounts which try to get at the truth in that kind of a sense. Um, and a lot of them are published in Frankfurt and, and in Latin. And those kind of works are what Knowles draws on. And interestingly, amongst those, there's, there's a works, well, two works by a, a chap called Hans Levenklau, who's um, they're very interesting works and nobody's really done much work on them. What they are is they're Latin translations of Ottoman chronicles. Hmm. And so actually these, these become really ubiquitously cited in, in in European writing on, on the Turks at this point in time. And uh, actually they're translated by Hungarian and nobody who knows really who he is or what his name was. Mm-hmm. And in Levenklau, he, um, he edits them together. And, um, nobody's really done detailed enough work to be entirely sure which Ottoman chronicles they're translating, because it seems like they're translating a chronicle compilation, right? So it would be parts of several. Um, and really, a, a great piece of work for some German PhD student to do. It's just me, <laughs> <laughs> and he's very comfortable in Latin. Don't yes. <laughs> <history. laughs> yeah, So Someone of who can speak Osmanli and Arabic and Latin could yeah. do a great project. Okay. But uh, no, I mean, so, so what happens with Knowles is that he draws, to, he, he tries to sort of do something in that same vein, right? He accepts as an Englishman, he draws on a lot of the kind of continental material which is available in England at the time, and he spends 20 years sorting it out, and he writes this very comprehensive, very stylistically tight account of the Turks, which then kind of becomes the form in which Englishmen, at any rate, educated Englishmen who want to know to the Turks, turn to Knowles and for the 100 years or so afterwards especially you really see that imprint of the form that he gave the european writing on the Turks that was floating about that that imprint that Knowles gave it kind of um, is very influential and very and carries on for a great deal of time is still being read you know in by people like byron and mm-hmm. much much later hundreds of years later so
0: mm-hmm. and what ha- Could you talk a little bit about the sources that he had? I mean, how did he gain the information? He read the pamphlets, you say, and he had. He actually, a lot of what he read were compilation chronicles. Mm -hmm. So there's an awful
1: lot of. um, Really, I think that primarily, Nose's sources were Latin, lengthy chronicles. He got quite a lot of them, I think. through his patron, who is a guy called Roger Manwood and then Peter Manwood. Peter Manwood's an interesting guy. He's a part of the Society of Antiquaries that the Archbishop of Canterbury, John Whitgift, is kind of holding. And um, that that whole circle includes people like Robert Cotton and other people in the antiquarian movement. other people who write on the Turks, like Abraham Hartwell, who's um, Whitgift's secretary. So you've got this kind of circle of people who knows, knows is kind of vaguely connected to And over a course of 20 years, he gets access to various chronicles. um, And really a a lot of his sources are kind of compilation chronicles. So I think one of the things that's interesting about Knowles is that he's, when he's drawing on Greek authors, he's drawing on compilations of Greek authors translated into the Latin. When he's drawing on Turkish authors, he's drawing on compilations of Turkish authors translated into Latin. Like, so when he's drawing on on Latin authors, he's still often drawing on compilations of Latin authors translated into Latin or, or, you know, presented that way. So already, once Knowles is like sorting and systematizing this vast amount of information that he looked at, it's already kind of systematically arranged for him in a form within this kind of tradition of writing on Turkish history that already exists in Europe as a response to the Ottomans in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, he kind of gives that... um, an English form, but a lot of the conceptual work is already there in his sources. A lot of, you know, for example, the way that he organizes the material, he starts off with a a kind of a history of the Turks origins going right back into the distance of time. Then he gives an account of the crusades and then he gives like a, a, a sort of rain by rain, account of the lives of Solons, and he ends at the end with a kind of conclusion which talks about their military and, and sort of general headings of topics of kind of political science. But this, this same structure appears in an office of sources. Mm-hmm. So he definitely takes not just information, but like ways of organizing the information from these continental authors.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, are the sources that he drew on largely gone now? Do we know them? Can we identify them? Like,
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like- I mean, again, through USTC and, you know, like uh, there, was, there was actually a, a, an Orientalist um, from a long time back, an Ottomanist called Vernon Parry. Um, I, uh, you know, he, he his PhD it's actually an unsubmitted PhD from 1968. One of his Turkish students got the, his notes and the draft for this off his widow, and in I think 2001 or something—I I don't know quite when—but like um, he he got this published um, in mm. Turkey, sort of edited it together and published it. And um, that that was the only previous work that's really been written on oh. notes. Hmm. So that that was definitely something that I would I would give you know like. A, that was a good starting point for identifying many of these kind of... I mean, I'd, I'd identified lots of them myself. He knows gives a list of 36 authors mm-hmm. and then cites various people in the margins throughout his book. If you go through the... I mean, it's 1,200 pages of folio, the right. first edition. Of, right. You know, And there's editions of it, they all add extra bits. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff there if you want to plow through it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you you can get back to an awful lot of those... And of course, now that you can get digital copies online, I was able to, when he does cite things in the margin, check things like page references mm-hmm. against specific editions and identify exactly for, you know, several of them, which ones he'd used. There's 36 different authors that he lists, mm-hmm. but actually a number of those are in compilations which contain all of them. So it's less than probably less than 36 books, or at least large books. But there's, there's no real way to know. I mean... It's it, he's often drawing on several sources, but he writes well. That's one of the things about Knowles. He really has like a sort of even, polished rhetorical style. And so it is, it's quite hard to follow where he's lifted things from. And you're kind of just speculating. I think that's kind of a, to a certain extent, I was able to identify a, a large number of his sources, but I didn't really try to go through and follow um, which sections are based on what primarily, other than you get a sort of a feel for that if you work with it for long enough. But.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this might be a ridiculous question, but how does it stand up in the light of modern historiography?
1: Well, I mean, it depends. It depends what you want to, what you want to take it for. I mean, like I, I think an awful lot of modern writers on Knowles have um, sort of taken him as being an interesting reflection of um, sort of contemporary British ideas about the Turks. Um, but haven't really treated it as anything other than a kind of an orientalizing, um, long-winded, dense, difficult to deal with, yeah. kind of inconvenient. So everybody cites Knowles, but nobody really cites anything beyond the first page. Because mm-hmm. I mean, he has this terrific phrase on the first page, the, um, the present terror of the world, you know, like the glorious empire of the Turks, the present terror of the world. So everybody cites that, and very few people really go any further with Knowles. And which is a shame because I think actually in, in, in a lot of ways that the reasons why these hard to be are the same reasons why people appreciated it so much in the past, mm-hmm. which is to say, you know, it, it ties in very well with contemporary uh, early 17th century ideas about what good historical writing is.
0: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: You know, in that it is very moralizing in yeah. that it does have a very heavy rhetorical element to it in that, you know, it, it doesn't, present you with these different sources that contradict each other so much, it sort of smoothed out the dif- differences. But that, that was the purpose of history in, in that period. So, I mean, I think it kind of depends. It sort of reflects the approach that I took in this book as someone who's more influenced by uh, intellectual history approach than the kind of Turkish other approach. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think if you, if you take that kind of Turkish other approach, then Knowles is very easy to kind of dismiss as just an example of that. Yeah. Whereas I don't think that really gets you into any of the interesting ideas through which he structures. Yeah, I see
0: I, I, see, I see what you mean. I, I know that when I was working with the Russian sources, the Muscovite, that is the European writings on muscovy one of the questions that I asked myself, which I, I guess, I don't know if my colleagues liked it or not, but I tried to find out whether what these people said was true or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it turned well, out very often it was. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> is actually one thing about Knowles as well, that like
1: there's once you start to know a lot about Ottoman history and yeah. once you start to read... Through the, if you you try to understand the discourse in which he's writing, then there's enough, he is well informed about the term. Yeah, yeah. Like, give give you three examples very quickly. So, I mean, he says, first of all, in his conclusion, he says, you know, that he kind of hopes that the Ottoman Empire will fall soon and that this will be this kind of, Ecological event where it, it, the end of days will happen and the, the Muslims will all convert to Christianity and then we'll have the end of days and it will be terrific. Um, but the reason he says that this is, that he's hoping for this is that there's been recent rebellions across the, the Turkish empire. And sure enough, I mean, at the point in time when he's writing, there was, there it was a time of difficulty in Anatolia. There was major rebellions happening. The Jalali rebellions are going on. And, and, you know, actually this is something which, which is, which he's, you know it is kind of a heavily glossed by Knowles, but there's a there's a detail in there which is well informed you know like similarly he goes on and on about um kind of uh, the Ottoman policy of um, you know executing unsuccessful claimants to the throne, and this is something which is a real bugbear of european writing about the ottomans but actually i mean the probably the, the most notorious example of a, of a sultan coming to the throne and having his various siblings kind of assassinated immediately um, had just occurred in the sort of mid to early to mid 1590s and knows is right 1603 so actually in his in his kind of a um getting worked up about that there's a reflection of something which was actually very topical and had just happened. Mm-hmm. And sure, he extrapolates it to a general principle of state, but what he's reading is something which is there in the sources, right. and he's, he's you know he's very concerned about it. And so I think that if if you sort of if you try to understand the way that that Knowles organised his information about the Ottoman Empire, what his preconceptions were within that, you can see that even he'd read a great deal of detail. And actually, you know, if you look at what the um, the, the last edition, the 1687 edition of, of Knowles is published together with a guy called Paul Rico, his works. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen it bound together with translations of um, Du Roy's um, Al-Quran, the, the Quran in English, uh, which again is, is published originally in the 1640s, but ends up republished in the 1680s. And if you think of it, you know, it's in three volumes, this enormous book. The scope of it is absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's trying to give an account of the Turks, from literally their prehistory up to the present day, with a systematic breakdown of all of their laws, of all of their administrative things, of their religion, of the way that the state operates, of their military, and of their holy book and religion. You know, and the ambition of that. Yep. Is is actually when you stop and think about it astonishing. Yes, it is. and you know it's worth saying that it's uh, there's absolutely no equivalent of that in the Ottoman Empire regarding Europeans. No, you know like the, the, that's um, sure. and you know obviously that's because yeah for the Turks you know at, at that point in time they're they're so dominant in a military sense. That you know, like, they, they didn't need to know that much about the Europeans. The mm-hmm. Europeans were people who you either went and conquered or they came to you and after it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. So uh, we would be, we're running out of time. So, but we would be yeah. remiss to, uh, to not to talk about, I, I don't know if it's Noel's successor or the next big figure, but that is Paul uh, Rousseau. I think you pronounce, is that Well, so it's, it's interesting,
1: actually. I mean, he's, um he's Dutch Huguenot family. Yeah. And so, Sonia Anderson, who's done like the work on Rycot, assures me that it's Rycot. Okay, it does look like Rico, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, and I do, I do wonder about Rico or Reichert because um, I, you know, he's translated very quickly into French. <laughs> I do wonder if the name made him go down better. Or something, you know, <laughs> like. But uh, one of the things. So Rycot's really interesting because he's a diplomat. And he's involved in the English trade there. for a very. He lives in Turkey for a very long period of time. And um, he's private secretary to the ambassador, Winchelsea, Chelsea, for, for a substantial period of time. And he, his big work is a work called the, the Present State of the Ottoman Empire, which is a kind of a political, I mean, today we'd call it a political science or a political economy maybe of the Ottoman Empire, which tries to break down based on interactions that he's had with their officials and things that he's asked people who are actual officials in the Ottoman Empire, how does it all work? And um, what's interesting is that he kind of becomes Knowles' successor. And in England, he kind of ends up writing sequels to Knowles' history, (laughs) much to his own irritation, if you read his letters. Um, You know, he calls, he says to his publisher, well, why should I be appended to this, the work of an old obsolete author, by whom he means Knowles, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very much, you know. But what's interesting is that if you look in a European context, in a European context, nobody's interested in Knowles. Like, he's a big deal in a British context. But um, in a European context, uh, you know, Reichert's published in six different languages. He appears in numerous, numerous editions in French, you know, in, in uh, Polish and Italian and Spanish and German and Russian. And you know, so he's you know, it's very unusual for an English author of the the 1660s to be being published widely across Europe. I mean, particularly if he wrote in English originally, mm-hmm. rather than that. So I mean, I think that. One of the things that's very interesting about Reichert, and, and we talked a lot about t- history today, but a major theme in the book is about how that's kind of counterbalanced at the time. You know, th- th- all these pejorative ideas about the Turks absolutely did not stop Englishmen from wanting to trade or have diplomatic relationship with the Ottoman Empire because it's obviously a very wealthy, very powerful place. And so um, Reichert is the point where the kind of a scholarly interest, I mean, Reichert's this incredible figure very, you know, spoke numerous languages and is um, very learned in a lot of ways as a member of the Royal Society. Um, he, he brilliantly wrote a paper for the Royal Society titled something like On the Gregarious Habits and Nature of Sable Mice. Which are that, that's, that's, that's wonderful details. Not read it personally. But the, thing but. About, the thing about Ryko is that he illustrates that relationship between actual pragmatic trade and contact between England and the Turks with the sort of scholarly things. And one of the things that I think is interesting about it is that you can be someone like Reichert and you can be a a proponent for trade with Turkey and for diplomatic relationships with Turkey, which he was very strongly the case. But that didn't necessarily mean that you didn't have pejorative, negative ideas about the Turks. Mm -hmm. And that sort of hard-headed desire to still make money, to still have those kind of contacts, to still be diplomatically useful, that it didn't necessarily undercut the kind of ideas that were there in the present culture about the Turks, um, you know, being an adversary, an alien culturally being religiously different. So, I mean, I think it was one of the things that's interesting is the way that those, that there isn't a contradiction there for contemporaries. And you see that several of the, the people who are involved in trade. I think actually one of my next projects is likely to be um, editing the letters of a figure called Edward Barton, who's a, Fascinating figure, English ambassador in Turkey, is letter books survive in the British Library. So uh, I think I would li- like very much to move away from um, the kind of scholarly accounts and look more into the accounts of the trade, because I think you see um, a very different, s- but still very important set of English relationships with Turkey and with the Ottomans through those d- diplomatic papers and those trade papers. And I think that, that sort of interaction between how the ideas sort of interact. With how people actually behave when there's money at stake, especially, mm-hmm. uh, I think becomes very interesting and has the potential to somewhat undercut the, the. I mean, our understanding of the way that Englishmen thought about the Turks is very based on printed material at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think we could complement that by looking a bit more at their practical relationships with them.
0: Mm-hmm. I was wondering about these books, some of which are, are very large, even the, some of the accounts of Muscovy, you know, they run into hundreds of pages. Did anyone ever read these books? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondered. Well, I mean, that.
1: I sometimes think, you know, maybe there wasn't so much to do. Like, like polls, you get good reading out of for, for a number of years. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. You really would. You really would. So how much does, uh, this is just a question, in my own research, what I found is if, and you've kind of already answered the question, that is if, 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 if uh, in, the, in the case of, um, in the case of Muscovy, there was a fellow named Herberstein and there was a fellow about a hundred years later named Oliarius, and yeah. one borrowed a lot from the other. Let's put yeah. it that way. Did you see a lot of that? in
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you certainly sort of thing, yeah. it, it's funny. Like, I, I think the reason why Knowles is such a big part of my book is that he's the kind of bottleneck between English writing on the Turks and European writing good, on the Turks.
0: Good, good analogy.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you, you see this, there's obviously important authors like, um, Jovio, like um, Buzbek, uh, people like this, who write about the Turks in Europe. And they, you kind of, after a while, you can spot the sections that they wrote on them. But the form that Knowles put it in, you spot it. Like now, having worked in it for 15 years, if I see a passage that cribbed from Knowles somewhere else, it just sticks out like a sore thumb to me. Yeah, I
0: can see that kind of thing too. To yeah. of these things
1: and too. so you, you definitely do get these kind of repetitions. Um, what's interesting is that with Reichert in particular, is that he's very keen to set himself apart from the rest of writing on the Turks and say, well, you know, these guys are just all repeating each other or they're, you know, they're they're travellers who've just been through their pilgrims. They've only seen surface things. Well, as I've been there for 12 years, I've been secretary to the ambassador. I know lots of Ottoman officials personally. I mean, you're getting the inside track from me. Right. And that's one of the things I think that makes his work so valued across Europe is that sort of... I mean, But what's quite interesting about Reichardt is that he, from the perspective of a historian like me, is that by setting himself apart from that English writing on the Turks, he kind of defines some of the outline characteristics of what that writing is, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's, that's one of the things that, that I like about the intellectual history approach is that it kind of forces you to think about, you know, what is this conversation that's happening? What is this discourse? Um, as opposed to the kind of Saidian or, or Foucaultian approach where you you can bring various sources into relationship with each other without necessarily having to show historical actors self-consciously thinking of them as being in relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. So someone like Recca is very interesting from that kind of perspective that he tries to step apart from what he perceives as the rest of English writing on, on the Turks, which then gives you a great account of, of contemporary thinking about what that Writing was, and what it meant, and what its weaknesses were.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that in the 17th century, by the late 17th century, a critical a kind of critical tradition had formed. That, and, and when new books came out, not all of them, of course, some of them were by hacks, but they would say, "Well, you know, Herberstein says this, but that's wrong." Yeah, or O'Leary says this, but that's wrong. So yeah, I'm mean, sure you've it's read this, the major that's things wrong. that travel
1: writers do, in particular.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I mean, yeah. I'm sure you've read various things of Russia where they're kind of going, well, such and such says this. Herbert Stein says this, but I went there and it wasn't like that Yeah, not, no, that's absolutely
0: right. But the 17th century,
1: they're definitely doing that. They're being critical. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even the early 17th century, you yeah. see that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, there, there's some wonderful bits where, um, I think one of my favorite examples of that is Feinz Morrison going to Jerusalem and being like, well... This isn't where the Bible says the streets are at all. It must have, made the city, it must have messed the city up because the Bible's definitely right. So, you know, they've, yeah.
0: they've done something weird with the streets. Yeah, that's funny. So, um, and then this stuff just to kind of cap cap our our, our discussion. This stuff, and I was fascinated by this when I was doing this work is this stuff makes it into the kind of proto-social literature. It Gets into Montesquieu.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Riker's a big influence on Montesquieu.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Riker in particular is like. Um, a pathway for for that to happen absolutely
0: yeah absolutely um, and yeah
1: like i think th- it's it's an interesting question i was, I was reading you know gelpo ruby is writing on oriental despotism and he views that as a very 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 long slow development as mm-hmm. well as for for myself you know I, I kind of i think that i can see something out of which orientalism de- evolves mm-hmm. you know going right back through reich out to people like Tacitus and the uh, sort of yeah. new Aristotelian traditions about you know, political philosophy and tyranny and despotism, these kind of concepts. Yeah. But for me, someone like Reichert's not yet writing Oriental Despotism. Yeah. He's just, he's kind of, it's a, it, he's definitely influential on the people that do write. I mean, Montesquieu in particular.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you, you kind of, I think the difference is, is that, that that sort of mid 18th century stuff it's more abstracted. Mm-hmm. You know, like Riker is writing about the Ottomans. He's not writing about the East. Right? It's not. It's not a generalized theory. Yeah. I mean, he 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 already starts to gesture towards some of those kind of moves, like um, climate-based uh, explanations. Although he didn't really make them explicit. Uh, but you can you can sort of see the seeds there, really. But I think I still I still view that, view him as writing in a different stage from that later kind of.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that about the the people who wrote books about Muskie in the 17th century. They they were sort of interested in this sort of typology, and they knew it from Aristotle, but I, I don't think it was principle in their mind. They wanted to find out what happened when. I mean, while someone like Knowles is much more
1: similar to someone like Giles Fletcher in terms uh-huh. of the, the kind of... But then, of course, Giles Fletcher has that very strong connection with the trade. Yep. There's all that kind of... I mean, There's all the kind of editing of those accounts that appear in exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, I'm afraid to say that we've uh, uh, almost run out of time. Not quite. I have time to ask you our traditional final question on New Books in History, Anders, and that is what are you working on now? Well, I'm I'm working on several things. So um,
1: my next kind of church project is going to be an account of Edward Barton's letters in in the British Library. And he's a very fascinating figure because he's very controversial in his time. Um, but we will see about that. I mean, at the moment, I'm working at the National University of Galway, uh, National University of Ireland, Galway, rather, on the Text, Transmissions, and Cultural Exchange Project, which is a database of Ars Epidemica travel literature. So uh, That's there's cool. going to be an online database of, of different, of about 700 or so. That currently is, keeps growing. Cool. But the 700 or so at the moment travel advice accounts. And my other project is a long running one, which I keep on trying to find time to to work on, which is an account of publishing in the 16th century in London. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of shaping up to be something like a social history of book production. Wow. Wow.
0: All so those that sound good. It kind of grows out of all of those things, but yeah. you know,
1: like, you, can't, you can't help yourselves. The projects just proliferate.
0: <laughs> no, it's true, especially when ours epidemic. I remember running into that. That's that's a fascinating project, and that, that will be a huge contribution to scholarship. If I, yeah, yeah. I think and um, that, that,
1: will, that will hopefully be out sort of early to mid next year. Yeah,
0: that's
1: and that's running with. I don't know. I don't know if you know Professor Dan Carey at, at Galway. Uh,
0: no, I don't.
1: Oh no, don't. Okay, because um, he was uh, the one of the general editors on the Haklu edition project.
0: Uh-huh. I probably do know who he is. Then. Yeah. It's been a while since I've been involved with it, but it's a great project.
1: But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that the truth. I mean, I was involved in that a few years ago as well. But
0: yeah, that's good. Oh, All sorry. right.
1: Thank you very much for letting me have a chance to talk about my book. Oh, well, it was
0: really fun. And let me tell everybody in our audience um, that we've been talking to Anders Ingram about his book, Writing the Ottomans, Turkish History in Early Modern Eng- England. Anders, thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much, Mark. Absolutely, and let me say to our audience, thank you for listening to New Books in History, and I hope to uh, talk to you again very soon.